1: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're going to be discussing Professor Céline Caillant's Eloquence Embodied, Nonverbal Communication Among French and Indigenous Peoples in the Americas, published earlier this year by UNC Press on behalf of the Amahundro Institute. Professor Kayan is Associate Professor of History at Salisbury University. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Ryan.
1: So let's first discuss the uh, cover, um, How did you design the cover? What input did you have?
0: I had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted for for the book cover. So I actually provided um, the graphic designers at UNC with kind of a mock-up. It was very artisanal and (laughs) very basic. But uh, I wanted to use one of my favorite images uh, from early Florida. This is from um, the second French expedition to early Florida in 1563. And it represents... Uh, René de Laudonnière, who was the second in command of the colony and the leader of the colony at Fort Caroline, uh, and Satouriona, who was the Timucua chief uh, around the area where the French uh, landed. Um, and what's really unique about this uh, this image is that it represents, it shows Laudonnière and Satouriona holding hands. Um, and most representations of uh, touch and and connections and encounters between uh, Europeans and early Native Americans in in the early Americas show people fighting or violent touch rather than friendly touch um, and what's more remarkable is that this is actually um, a gesture that is documented by several in several written sources uh, so I thought this really Captured a lot of the things I'm talking about in terms of communication and bodily connections uh, between Indigenous people and the French in the early Americas. The second, the background of uh, of the cover is actually um, not from a French context. It's a map, an early map from 1608, or, uh, I believe, 0809, uh, from the Virginia Company of London, um, but and of course, which uh, settled. Jamestown, uh, and sponsored the Jamestown Colony in 1607. But what's interesting about it is that uh, it, it, it bears, uh, you know, the words uh, Nova Francia in uh, in Latin, which means New France, uh, for what's today kind of northern, northeastern North America. Uh, it shows Florida. Uh, it also shows Guyana Dill, and, and the Caribbean very well. And I wanted to convey the idea that one of the goals of my book is to decenter the story of French America away uh, to some extent from Canada uh, to show that really this was a trans-semispheric uh, endeavor and that the French really settled all across the Americas, North, South, and the greater Caribbean region. Uh, so that's how I came to to putting together those two images. And, and the graphic designers did a wonderful job at, at kind of realizing this vision for me.
1: What do you mean by nonverbal, and what are source examples that illuminate similarities and differences between bodily and formal sign systems before and after uh, French encounters with indigenous peoples?
0: Well, I'm really glad you are asking this question, Ryan. Thank you uh, because nonverbal is a tricky word and it's a even trickier concept really, so uh, I should first say how I use it in my in my book um. In the book, I use nonverbal to refer to bodily movements and signals that were consciously used by participants in colonial encounters to communicate something. Um, So this can really uh, include a lot of different things. Uh, It could be greeting gestures, so a hand wave as a salute, for instance, or different uh, types of salutations, depending on local Um, practices and and local traditions. It could be uh, symbolic actions, including smiling and dancing and waving arms up in the air. This was uh, often what the French described in a very vague way as a sign of joy, Uh, but this could be, again, a lot of nonverbal behaviors. And it can also be conventional signs. Uh, For instance, um, we have examples of an Iroquoian sign for friends or brothers, uh, which is a, in the joining of the two index fingers. Uh, you, you you join your fingers side by side and you lift your hands at eye level. That's a very conventional uh, sign uh, that's used in, in connections with, um, with oratory and, and official discourse. So nonverbal in its broad sense can include things like smoke signals and sonorous signals, uh, the firing of weapons and things like that, uh, and other embodied behaviors that are sometimes hard to classify. But uh, for the purpose of clarity in the book, um, I try to chiefly pay attention to finger arm, hand, and bodily or kinetic gestures, meaning gestures in movement, uh, which have explicit communicative uh, qualities. Um, it is difficult to explain uh, kind of in, a, in a nutshell because nonverbal modes of expression are really best understood uh, along a spectrum. And linguists today uh, and people who specialize in the study of the nonverbal and nonverbal communication um, in different settings uh, are still debating how best to describe those things. Uh, so on the one hand, we have things that we conceive as improvised or ad hoc gestures. Uh, for the French in the colonial context, uh, it can just be gesticulating while speaking, or it could be like holding, you know, a beaver pelt uh, to show, you know, your desire to trade, those things seem like to be spontaneous. But what I argue and what I demonstrate, of course, uh, basing my research on, on, um, again, the work of linguists and anthropologists and other experts in nonverbal communication is that there are no real purely improvised gestures, Um, even though nonverbal communication might often appear universal or to have, to possess universal qualities, meaning to be legible across cultural boundaries. So if you hold your beaver pelt on a stick uh, from a distance, everybody would understand you mean that you want to trade that beaver pelt. Uh, But in practice, um, cultural... um, Cultural conventions are really strongly shaping that type of nonverbal, all types of nonverbal communication. So some nonverbal signs become so internalized by members of a community uh, that that we think it's it's spontaneous, right? And we might think it's uh, completely uh, universal. Um, you might think of the sign uh, contemporarily as uh, a sign for cuckoo or crazy, right? With a finger near one's head, uh, rotating, uh, this is performed in different ways, by the way, uh, in Europe and, and in America today, but it is understandable across, uh, across cultures. Uh, again, this might seem like something you do in a spontaneous way, uh, in an ad hoc way, uh, but it actually is underlined by, uh, linguistic aspects, but also cultural um, conventions. Um, So this is very different. This is at one end of the spectrum, we might have gesticulations or spontaneous, you know, uh, signs of friendship uh, performed by one or the other side uh, during encounters. At the other end of the nonverbal spectrum, we have fully coded sign languages. Um, Those are independent from the spoken tongue that they are expressing or they are associated with. Uh, and in fact, sometimes the, the signs do not really represent a specific word. Uh, it can capture instead a, a different conception or a larger uh, conception uh, than, than words could capture uh, in, a, in a given language. Um, so those systems, those sign languages, which really deserve the, the title of sign language, are really... Um, or really follow completely uh, linguistic conventions and codes, uh, meaning that they follow the same rules as languages. Um, they are not necessarily iconic, right? They don't uh, necessarily represent in a in a visible ways of things that they designate, right? Uh, Most people today would be familiar with that type of sign language, uh, with sign language for the deaf, for deaf communities. Uh, And I've actually authored uh, an essay uh, in the American Historical Review a couple of years ago where I discussed why our conception of sign language as associated with disability and with deafness has actually prevented us since the 19th century Um, in recovering other ways in which sign languages were used in the past. And so what I show in the book uh, is that there were uh, a number, and I believe more than we suspected uh, for a long time, a number of conventional sign languages used by indigenous people to communicate with our neighbors, with their enemies, with their allies across linguistic boundaries. One thing that we need to realize is that Early America, the time of the arrival of Europeans in the late 15th century, is one of the most diverse places in terms of languages. Not only do we have thousands of dialects, uh, but we also have hundreds um, of, of, of very large linguistic families. And among those, you know, between those linguistic families, there's very little. Um, mutual communication that's possible. So the difference between a Siouan language and an Algonquian language, for instance, in North America, is as broad, as different as today's the difference between Chinese and English, for instance. Um, they're very, very dissimilar. So, of course, it doesn't mean that people could not communicate. Uh, they had to have other ways to communicate. Uh, and so they use nonverbal languages to communicate across Linguistic barriers uh, before uh, Europeans arrived, but they also use nonverbal languages in a way that the French and other Europeans would have been very familiar with, which is in conjunction with speech or in replacement for speech uh, when silence was required um, for ritual reasons. So within the same community, within the same uh, nation, for instance, people might use uh, sign language. Uh, during specific um, festivals or times of, of the year, where things were uh, where where silence was prescribed for religious reasons, uh, for instance, in periods of mourning um or there could be a specific sign language that was actually gendered that uh or or that had to do with class where the elite would communicate with each other using a combination of a specific dialect of their language that was reserved for the elite but also uh sign language dialects that were reserved for the exchange of certain um i guess um uh special uh information, right? Uh, and and women might communicate with sign language in some communities as well. So again, going back to nonverbal, to that word, uh, is that nonverbal is confusing because it seems to imply an opposition to speech. But what I try to explain throughout the book is that most of the time, nonverbal signs, uh, the conventional ones and the more improvised or less conventional ones, Um, that are not part of a system of sign language, Um, they are often used alongside speech, whether or not the person you're talking to is understanding your speech. So for a long time, historians tended to think that early, you know, colonists and, and natives used gestures, relied on gestures, because they didn't have a choice. It was because they didn't have language. And therefore, it's often been all those gestures and those signs. I'm not the first one to notice them. But most of the time, people assume that those were temporary solutions uh, to the linguistic barrier. They also assumed that um, it was uh, an inadequate or uh, imperfect solution to the linguistic barrier. And what I try to, to argue throughout the book, and I, and I hope I do so uh, convincingly, is that actually uh, nonverbal modes of communication, because they're always associated with spoken context, they continue to be extremely important to diplomacy and missionization, uh, conversion of Native Americans, and other contexts in which Europeans and Natives are communicating. Uh, it is extremely important for both sides to follow protocols, uh, but also to display a certain type of behavior that they know is going to be uh, valued and 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 seen as respectful by the other side. Uh, and so, gestures and modes of expression, uh, just like touch and and communicative gestures more largely. Um, continue to be really central uh, even after they start learning languages and I actually dedicate a couple of chapters as well uh, to the way sign language and signs in general contributed and shaped the way Europeans acquired native languages and the way natives learned or refused to learn um, French or English or other languages. Uh, all right. So, yeah. To sum up, to come back to to your question, I had to make really tough choices uh, in writing the book for the sake of just, you know, selecting the most significant uh, examples, uh, and 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 to make things kind of understandable, of course. And so, um, communicative intent has been my criteria. Uh, I touch upon dress, hairstyle, tattoos, songs, dancing all those things that are definitely modes of nonverbal self-expression. But because they're not always uh, specifically directed to a specific audience at a specific moment of the encounter with a specific uh, message or communicative uh, you know, intention, um, I decided to kind of not focus um, on those and focus more on uh, native expressiveness as a holistic mode of expression that really combined visual, verbal, material, uh, and nonverbal uh, elements. And it's really that connection, that holistic uh, working of all those different dimensions of communication uh, that I'm interested in, in the book.
1: Can you provide examples of what you mean by, quote-unquote, conventional sign systems with similar structural traits? as well as French dichotomies thereof across the Americas.
0: Yeah. Um, so this is really uh, a question that gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about my method uh, before we jump in uh, more of the, the meat of, of what I'm talking about. Uh, of course, one of the challenges that, that I faced uh, in recovering this mode of communication is that sign language uh, and all languages, infest, uh, in fact, uh, change and can also become extinct. Um, so there's usually a special keepers of that knowledge, whether linguistic or non-linguistic, uh, within a community, right? And so if they die, uh, the language sometimes dies with them. Uh, the social processes by which these languages and these modes of nonverbal communication, especially when they're fully conventional science systems, um, the way they're passed on to new generations and practiced and preserved, uh, anytime this is disrupted the language is at risk of disappearing. And of course, there's few things more disruptive than colonialism. So many of the groups that the Europeans encountered, um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, have been so displaced uh so decimated by centuries of colonization uh that we don't really uh always have current descending communities to compare with um or to consult with uh and we also or those descending communities um have you know forgotten uh those that knowledge um just like a lot of uh, cultural knowledge has been lost as well through that process so we still do in some places, uh, especially in pockets within the Amazon region and uh, Guiana, the, the larger Guiana region of northern uh, South America, uh, and also in the Western American plains where settlers did not really uh, invade in mass until uh, the 19th century, we have some examples that we can rely on. So what scholars like me, uh, what can we do? Um, my approach was to study examples of sign languages that we have uh, in more recent contexts, from the 19th century to today that have been recorded by early scientists from the Smithsonian, for instance, uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century in the Western Plains. Uh, this is known as a plain Plains Indian Sign Language um, is very well documented. We even have uh, video footage from the 1930s uh, that, that some uh, Americans uh, made in, in order to preserve uh, a trace of what they believed was a disappearing practice of, of sign communication in the Plains. Uh, we also have examples um, of Aboriginal sign language in, uh, in Australia. We have examples of sign languages uh, all across the globe, actually. There are some in Europe and still in small po- pockets, uh, cultural pockets, for instance, in the, in the Pyrenees um, and in Greece, uh, in, in different contexts like that. So, I try to make myself as familiar as possible with different uh, modes of nonverbal communication and then what sign language uh, languages look like, especially, of course, in the American context. And we still have traces, uh, again, studied by anthropologists today and linguists today, um, of nonverbal languages uh, throughout the Americas. There's a whistle speech uh, in parts of Mexico. Uh, there are uh, documented sign languages still in use uh, in in parts, like I said, of, of the Guianas uh, in what's today Venezuela, Suriname, and French Guiana, for instance. Um, So what I did is that I I looked for key patterns or structural traits. And that's what I mean, to answer specifically your your question, um, that's what I mean by... uh, similar structural traits. So I'm looking for patterns. I'm looking uh, for things that are common among conventional sign languages, including sign languages for the deaf, although those um, are are slightly different because they're uh, actually associated with a specific spoken language. Uh, This is why it's not a universal deaf sign language, but we have a French sign language and an American sign language for the deaf and, and so forth. Um, but so I identified some of those traits, some of those traits, and then I tried to find traces of that, things that match that within imperfect and fragmented uh, sources from the colonial period. Um, so, for instance, one of those traits is that sign language is not used uh, in mundane conversations. Uh, sign language is uh, associated with very selected topics such as diplomacy. Uh, It's often associated to express specific rhetorical tropes, uh, specific stories, for instance, things that are pretty sacred, like stories of origin or uh, highly ceremonial speech in native cultures. Uh, We also know that sign language as as one of its main qualities, uh, the advantage of being very flexible, very adaptable, much more so than words. Uh, and so that it can express even concepts that are not really common in the language of, of the speaker. And so a skilled uh, sign talker or sign speaker, um, uh, as they're referred uh, to, uh, can really quickly adapt. And so when we have an example, I, I have an, an instance, for instance, uh, for example, in in, in Florida, where, again, René de Laudonnière, who I mentioned earlier, is uh, conversing mainly through signs with the Chimukua chief. Uh, and he says, at first, I, I really didn't understand what he was saying because he, he spoke too fast, and, and I, I just I don't understand his language, so I, I couldn't understand what he was saying. But then he repeated what he said, and this time he added gesture. And this time, Laudonnière is able to understand uh or feels like he can understand at least uh, very well what what the chief is trying to tell him was trying to convey, and I believe that that's an example of a, a skilled sign talker adapting to his audience and turning uh, a completely incomprehensible language into one that can be uh, understood across linguistic barriers thanks to uh, signs that are iconic or that draw on the material culture uh, that surrounds the speakers at this moment. Uh, So that's another trait. Uh, We also know that, for instance, in places where there's uh, asserted, we we know that there's uh, sign languages that are conventional, uh, they usually include specific mathematical signs to express numbers. And so wherever I found um, a source, a French source, that said, oh, they use signs to express numbers. Uh, This is a pretty good indication, a pretty good clue for us that there might have been a larger sign system, even if the French may not have witnessed it again, because um, often those are reserved for very uh, chosen, very specific uh, and dignified occasions that maybe the Europeans would not be uh, privy to. and so um, this is um, this is really, uh, again, we have to remember that the European visitors to the Americas were not anthropologists or linguists, uh, and they're not trying to identify whether or not there's a system of sign. So uh, I had to really look through all the records that we have for those two centuries uh, and try to figure out where um, it's likely that French encountered those systems that would really have facilitated uh cross linguistic and cross cultural communication, so I'm pretty uh certain that they encountered it in the greater caribbean uh region including uh in southern florida um and uh and 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 we yeah and and so that's that's kind of uh how i came came to to do this this is also why it's important. Uh, for for me to to take a transhemispheric approach again, if we only looked at examples from Canada, we wouldn't see uh, traces of that. We would see conventional signs associated with formal oratory, but we wouldn't see a separate sign language system necessarily. Uh, whereas if we compare with parts of Brazil and Guyana and the Caribbean, uh, we start seeing uh, more diversity and more complexity. In the communicative uh, context that the French encounter, and we can also make connections across uh, those different places. So that's very important for me to to compare a large uh, a large range
1: of places. Can you elaborate on the significance of the 1550 Brazilian spectacle and fest and festival near Rouen? And can you briefly explain uh, nonverbal relations to the written word? you know, like Montaigne, across the diverse linguistic landscape of early modern France.
0: Yeah, so you're referring to um, an anecdote that I use uh, at uh, to open my second chapter, uh, which is about an entrée royale that takes place in the town of Rouen. Now, Rouen was a major uh, port city uh, in France at the time. And by 1550, it's already deeply connected to Brazil uh, for the trade of Brazil wood, which was a very precious th- uh, wood that was used for uh, dyeing fabrics, but also to make uh, very uh, precious um, uh, furniture and things like that in, in Europe. So it was highly prized. Uh, and so the French already have been present in Brazil for half a century at this point. Uh, and there's a lot of merchants from Normandy uh, going back and forth. Um, so uh, Entrée royale or grand royal entry uh, is a type of pageantry that was inherited from the Middle Ages and cities really competed uh, to decorate themselves and celebrate the visit of a sovereign. So this is an example in which Henry II and Catherine of Medici, uh, his wife, and hundreds of followers in their suite uh, are entering Rouen uh, in, in this kind of grandiose ceremony and it's uh, it's really remarkable. What's even more interesting is, of course, Rouen, because of those connections with Brazil, uh, has chosen to give a theme to that, to that uh, I guess, celebration. And it's a huge Brazilian um, spectacle. And they're trying, so they, they, they have boats on the river, they have floats uh, and, and kind of uh, miniature theaters all along the route that the sovereign is taking. And those, uh, represent scenes of Brazilian life. They've imported, uh, rare birds, exotic birds, uh, plants, uh, fruits, uh, from, uh, from Brazil. And they, of course, have some actual indigenous peoples. They brought Tupi people, um, Tupinamba people, uh, Tupi for short, um, that they brought from Brazil. Uh, and they also threw in some mariners, some French, sailors uh, disguised as Tupinamba to perform the gestures of daily life uh, of a common village uh, in Brazil. And so this is set up uh, in different places, almost like those uh, theatrical um, performances all along uh, the route throughout the city. Uh, And and, and this really shows us uh, two things. Uh, First, it shows us the importance of of the New World and Brazil in France imagination by the late or mid uh, 16th century uh, here, uh, and how much people are are really concerned in France with um, accuracy of representation. Uh, The the, the chronicler of this Brazilian celebration in Rouen uh, keeps, you know, stressing the fact that those mariners are almost just like indigenous people. They they make believe. Right, like, like this is really realistic. This is true to life. Uh, even people who've traveled to Brazil uh, feel like this is really um, a realistic, uh, accurate representation of life in in the Amazon and in in, in southern Brazil, um, where where the French are trading at that time. Um, and so, this is really important to see uh, that that this is not so much a strange world anymore. The French are already really, by the mid-16th century, are are really observing very closely those gestures, those ways of life, those customs, uh, those manners that are different from theirs, uh, from their own. Um, And they're trying to imitate that as well and and bring that back home. The second thing that is very important here for me um, to make uh, is that it shows, of course, and it reminds us that the French are no strangers to nonverbal expressiveness. By the mid-16th century, um, there's very complex and multiple layers of nonverbal culture uh, and and culture of nonverbal expression among the French uh, in in, in France. So France at the the time is very diverse linguistically. Uh, Many regions possess dialects and nonverbal codes that are very specific to each region. Uh, It's only in the late Uh, 17th century, in the second half of the 17th century, under the impulse of Louis XIV, particularly, uh, there's going to be more efforts uh, at centralizing and kind of Frenchifying or, you know, uh, the provinces and making them kind of codifying all this and trying to make it more homogenous. But at the time, uh, the, the French are very, very familiar with gestures as a mode of expression that uh they feel often surpass um surpasses words, uh that's able to better communicate things than words. Um they are this is a culture that's highly performative, that's highly theatrical. To us, uh some of that, you know, like the Entree Royale, uh, this royal entry seems uh really over the top. Uh and there's so much symbolism. Uh, in the clothing, in the gestures, in the behaviors, um, in in the dances, in the music. um, All those things uh, are so complex that sometimes it's even hard for us today to quite fully grasp uh, what they're trying to convey because it's really, you need to be an insider in that culture. You need to be aware of kind of some very subtle cultural and and class differences um, uh, to, and conventions to understand what they're trying to represent. So um, the 1500s are really a, a very interesting time because the, the written word, of course, is spreading. Uh, more people are becoming literate. Printing in vernacular is also becoming more common. Uh, The book is becoming a a dominating force. But still, like the invention of the printing press and the spread of of, of printed books is more recent to those 16th century French people than cinema is for us, for instance, to put things in perspective uh, today. Um, So it's still in a transition. And so I talk about the 16th century. I think it's a really... Uh, sometimes overlooked or understudied period of colonial America, of, of colonial encounters, uh, even though we have very rich documents, really. Um, but, but I like the 16th century because it's still this period of transition where French culture is, of course, steeped in the written word, but it's also a very deeply oral culture. And in that sense, um, that provides them with, a platform, with something that's a commonality with, with indigenous societies, which are also primarily oral. They also have uh, ways you know, to inscribe knowledge on material supports, uh, but they're primarily oral and they transmit knowledge and relationships. Um, and those relationships are created and transmitted through gestural and physical ways. And this is not an alien concept for the French. That's that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with that chapter and with that story about Rouen, uh, is that uh, most people in early modern France, and especially most of the crews on the ships that traveled to America, did not write or read. Uh, they, they're familiar with the idea of transmitting knowledge through songs and through performance. Um, and they're familiar, again, with a very complex range of nonverbal communicative traditions within uh, early modern France, uh, so I think uh, we, we must we should not exaggerate the cultural clash um, and the degree of, of kind of the cultural the cultural gap uh, that exists between early modern Europeans and native people, especially in the sixteenth century uh, for that reason uh, and I think you mentioned Montaigne. Uh, I give the example of Montaigne because in his famous essays, um, one of the most famous essays by Montaigne is "Of Cannibals," in which he uses, uh, you know, the example of Brazilian uh, Indians uh, and the fact that they practice cannibalism in a ritualistic way uh, to kind of introduce Europeans to the idea of um, cultural relativism, meaning that, well, can we really be so critical of what they're doing? Uh which is eating other people, eating their enemies, uh when we at home are killing each other, and what he's talking about here is the context of the wars of religion. He's witnessed terrible uh horrendous crimes and uh and violence perpetrated by both sides, Catholics and protestants against against each other. Uh, in in France at the time. And he uses the examples of the Brazilian Tupi to point out, well, is it really, you know, is cannibalism uh, really all that bad uh, when you see what we're doing at home, killing each other, uh, killing fellow Christians? So that's usually what, what people have emphasized about this essay. But what struck me is that in, in that essay, he also references a specific encounter that he had in Paris with one of those Tupi Indians that was brought over uh, from Brazil. And he's really frust- Montaigne is really frustrated that he cannot communicate well with him because he's trying to ask questions through this interpreter who was there. Uh, but the interpreter is not really skilled, and Montaigne feels that he's not really doing justice to what he wants to say and to what the Tupi uh, man is responding. Uh, and so they start relying, uh, once again, uh, on, on gestures. And what I noticed is that this Tupinamba man that Montaigne encountered uh, at some point uh, tells him that he's the head of, of a large har- army, uh, and he points to a very large uh, area where, where they're standing in the street, and he says, you know, uh, kind of sort of plaza, and he says, uh, I'm, I'm the head of as many men as could fit in this space. Uh, and Montaigne, of course, doesn't say specifically, I understood that from the sign he made, but we know from other uh, contexts that there is a very specific sign and a sign that's very easily um, legible, I guess, across uh, linguistic differences um, that, that is a sign to show uh, a great number or great many of something. And this sign is documented uh, across the Americas, from Canada to Brazil, throughout both centuries, uh, and I've been able to find several instances. So it's, sometimes it, it, it is a way of grabbing one's hair and saying, you know, it's that many, as many as hair on my head, basically. Uh, or someone grabs a, a handful of sand or uh, shows, again, like uh, an area and says as many as fits this area. So there's different variations on that. But again, it's a conventional sign to show a great number and this is attested in, in Montaigne's essay. So I think it's interesting that very often people have been very skeptical uh, of 16th century writings, of travel accounts, of things like Montaigne's anecdote. Uh, for a long time, especially uh, postmodern readers, I guess, postmodern scholars, have doubted that we could really recover anything genuine or anything um, real about the original encounters because those were all representations. Those were all projections from European imagination. And I think my work uh, of recovering indigenous modes of communication and specific embodied expressions helps us recover some genuine moments of communication, some genuine actions, uh, and, and kind of differentiate between authentic and inauthentic uh, stories in our sources. And so I really believe that Montaigne did have uh, an actual conversation with an actual Tupi man, even if he used that story to make a point about the wars of religion. Uh, And that tells us something about the ways people communicated. And it tells us something about those interactions, both in America and back in France.
1: So you've alluded to several themes that I want to ask for my uh, next question. Let's go to the, is it possible we could talk a little bit about uh, Jacques Cartier? Sure. Uh, How did uh, Jacques Cartier's 1534 to 42 failed voyages to Quebec um, as well as those uh, fifteen early 1560s French expeditions in greater Florida contribute to ideas of gestures and science as vehicles for joy, friendship, and communication, along with misunderstandings and deception?
0: Uh, yeah, this is a, a broad question, but I'll try to, <laughs> to keep it short. Um, the reason that I refer to Jacques Cartier's uh, voyages as failures, uh, I, I put failure in quotation marks, um, it's because he doesn't Really achieve several of his uh, major goals, initial goals. So Cartier, Jacques Cartier is very famous, of course, as one of the first, I guess, French pioneers uh, who uh, discovers uh, again in quotation marks and explores the Saint Lawrence River Valley. Uh, his first voyage in what's today modern Quebec uh, takes place in uh, between April and September of 1534. He comes back uh, between May and July. Uh, uh, 1535 to 1536. Uh, and then his last voyage is between uh, May 1541 to September 1542. Uh, what he was charged to do by Francis I of France was uh, to find uh, a possible passage to China, a Western passage. This is an obsession where we know uh, of, of all European colonists, uh, when they explore the coast of of the Americas, they're looking for a quick passage to Asia that could really help them uh, undermine the domination of the Iberians, of Portuguese and Spanish merchants um, uh, with uh, the Indian trade and with the Asian trade uh, for for goods such as silk and and spices and and such very valuable uh, goods. Uh, So it doesn't of course, find uh, a passage to China. Uh, He goes uh, up uh, the St. Lawrence River as far as uh, modern-day Montreal, where he visits a very large Iroquoian town uh, uh, called Ochelaga. Um, But he doesn't find uh, a large sea or a large passage to uh, to the the Pacific Ocean. Uh, He also as a charge of looking for uh, possible goods to trade, for possible mineral resources that could be traded, that could be exploited. Again, a very common um, you know, goal of, of many uh, European explorers. Uh, he doesn't find anything like that. He, he tries to find silver and gold, and he finds uh, evidence of copper uh, mines. He finds evidence among... Uh, uh, the natives of some metals uh but not what he's looking for he definitely doesn't discover uh diamonds or anything that could really enrich uh the french crown uh and finally even though like i said he he visits several iroquoian towns and and large palisaded uh towns inhabited by probably several thousand um native americans he does not come across a large city um, of you know that that could be similar to Tenochtitlan uh, of the Aztecs or of Cusco of the Incas uh, that have made uh, again uh, the wealth of of the Spanish. So there's no such large centralized, uh, extremely wealthy uh, Indian civilization. So in those uh, in those terms is uh, in those regards is is voyages are kind of failed. Um, the Florida uh, expeditions are even further, uh, I guess, fail even if even more. Um, the Florida context is tied again to the wars of religion, and both early Florida settlements, Charles Fort in 1562, and then Fort Caroline in 1563 to 65, um, they are founded by Huguenots, uh, by French Protestants who are fleeing persecution. Uh, in France, uh, and they're actually, uh, consulting and, and working in close collaboration with some English Protestants as well. And so there's some connections here. Again, to undermine the domination of the Spaniards who have already, uh, kind of started to settle and, and expand into Florida, into the southeastern, uh, parts of North America during that time. Um, those two colonies are very short-lived. Charles Fort, um, is is a very small, very temporary settlement. Uh, Jean Ribot, the founder, leaves behind a group of sailors and settlers, um, and he promises to come back with supplies. But the supplies get delayed. It's kind of a similar story as the one in Roanoke, uh, North Carolina, for the British, for the English, um, a little bit later that century. Uh, and so eventually, this is a very interesting story, uh, those French uh, sailors that have been left behind, they decide to kind of build a raft uh, and they they manage to make it back, uh, to sail back. Of course, several of them die. Uh, they actually have to commit cannibalism and, and eat one of their fellow uh, sailors during the crossing back to Europe. They're eventually captured and picked up by uh, uh, an English ship, um, but they make their way back to France. So this is a pretty big disaster for the French in Florida. And the second attempt, uh, at Fort Caroline, uh, also fails this time because the Spaniards, um, in 1565, uh, led by Pedro Menendez de Aviles, uh, come and destroy the colony. And so at this time we have almost, uh, over 200 settlers, including women and children, uh, and, uh, and the Spaniards, uh, Massacre uh, the entire community and very few people make it out alive. Uh, they kill Ribot as well, um, decapitate him, uh, and, uh, and 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 really com- destroy the fort. and And that's the end of, of French attempts, of French Protestant attempts uh, in Florida for the time being. So those are obviously failures in that sense. Uh, but from my point of view, from the point of view of communicative uh, encounters, this is actually, uh, those are very successful uh, enterprises. Okay, uh, we see a very similar scenario of encounters in both places, in Canada and in Florida. Um, we see uh, a lot of greeting signs uh signs of joy right uh the french often describe them in very uh simple ways um and and again i want to stress my my goal here is to stress that this is not just wishful thinking on the part of the french it's not just that they they want to represent those encounters as successful and so they exaggerate uh the love and the friendship that uh, the indians uh, manifest for them um, I I want you to understand what in those bodily experiences made the French feel welcome uh, in such a warm way. And so very often what they describe are dancing and gestures of happiness and very warm welcomes with gift giving uh, and touch, uh, people touching their bodies. Um, and instead of Concluding like the English, that they the Indians are just really fascinated or in awe of their technology or their clothing or the, the whiteness of their skin. Uh, the French tend to uh, conclude that this is really uh, about love. It's really about affection, closeness, and and the promise of a future integration where uh, Native Americans and French people can can all live together uh, once the natives have become Frenchified and are, have converted to. Uh, Christianity. Um, this is very telling, of course, of the French perspective. But what, what it provides us is an opportunity to understand indigenous systems of meaning uh, and what those welcomes were really about, which is complex systems of expressing diplomacy, of incorporating foreigners, uh, of preserving the harmony of of the the universe while dealing with the novelty of those arrivals. Um, and so, the French, of course, misunderstand a lot, but I don't think they are completely mistaken uh, in believing that the native in to show them kinship, to express incorporation and welcome uh, to them with those signs of joy. Uh, And again, those signs can be very diverse. It can be anything from um, gestures, uh, like I said, and touch uh, to, you know, uh, greetings, verbal greetings as well. Um, And of course, those moments really hide deeper uh, misunderstandings, uh, when the French plant uh, large crosses or a pillar in Florida uh, to mark their claims on the land, um, they often note that the natives are taking this opportunity to express to them the the extent of their sovereignty over the land, uh, again, through gesture, and, and there's often very lengthy oratorical displays from, from native leaders at that time. So I think that's very uh, significant, and we need to look as well, not just at how the French are showing their domination over the land, but more uh, how uh, the local uh, leaders of native communities are really incorporating the French within their own uh, system of power and their own uh, um, kind of circle of influence uh, during that time.
1: How and why did Marc Lescarbot's edited sources on 16th century communication in his 1609 uh, uh, um, History, of New, History of New France, but that generate notions of a homogenous Franco-Indian realm.
0: Yeah, so so uh, this has to do with the fact that the transmission or accumulation of knowledge is definitely not a, a steady one. It's not a you know linear one. So it's not like you know after Cartier. The French have accumulated some knowledge and they can just transport that knowledge to another part of America, uh, specifically because uh, local indigenous contexts are very different, right? There's some commonalities. Um, everybody uses gestures, Every the French too, uh, but the shape, the specific shape and modes of communication are really uh, locally grounded. So the thing is uh, that those uh, records and those uh, stories of those encounters with chronicles are not always published immediately. Uh, For instance, Cartier's voyages are published. The first voyage appears in print after the second voyage has been published in print. uh, and And that second voyage appears in Italian before it's published in French. So, it's a very complex editorial history, um, and, and that prevents the French from really accumulating a steady amount of, of knowledge. They're not codifying or creating, you know, a database of those signs that can help them make, you know, communicate better on the ground with native people. What Les Carbot does in 1609, so after, you know, a century of French encounters and trade and a lot of undocumented, um, of course, uh, interactions that he's aware of, uh, is that he, for the first time, tried to synthesize all that knowledge. So he draws upon the chronicles that have been printed. He has read the stories and all the printed uh, records from Florida, fl- from early Canada. Uh, he's aware of Verrazzano's trip on behalf of uh, Francis I in 1524, he's aware as well uh, of what the merchants in Normandy are saying and bringing the knowledge they're bringing back from Brazil since the 1500s. Um, and he tries to sum up and synthesize that. And so to do so, he generalizes, of course, and he's one of the first authors to really try to to really compare regions uh, in kind of the way I, I try to do in my book, saying, hey, look, the, the natives of Canada are quite different from the natives of Florida, but they're also kind of the same. Um, and so they, let's say, you know, they, they wage war in in different ways, but they all do it kind of, they all prefer skirmishes, for instance, right? And so that process of generalization allows them first to minimize Uh, the difficulties of the local indigenous cultural context uh, and to kind of suggest that the French will have an easier time at colonizing all of America if they want to because of those commonalities among indigenous groups. Uh, But second, it also, of course, contributes to the simplification and and, and stereotyping of indigenous communities. Uh, And so in doing that, he often paraphrases those earlier chronicles, and I, I, I analyze how he, he selects uh, some elements but leaves out a lot of it. And so what what gets cut very often in those chronicles, such as Les Corbeaux, is precisely the means of communication, those specific unique moments of nonverbal exchange between people. Those moments where Lodonier and Saturiona are going to hold hands because Saturiona is drawing Lodonier within his own realm and trying to make him his ally uh, for his own geopolitical uh, reasons. Um, and a lot of those specific signs that are very precisely described in some of the original chronicles become just just are, are left silent or forgotten in the, the the synthesis that that Lescarbot and others are gonna publish. And as we go into choose the 17th century, more and more uh, it becomes a very popular genre of of travel literature where people are compiling accounts from all over, including Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, English, French, all into one volume and uh, one language translated, I guess, and thrown together. And what this does is that, it, again, it creates this idea of a, a similar and homogenous indigenous culture, which is grounded in some real similarities in cosmology and expression, but that also erases a lot of very important diversity and nuances on the ground.
1: So, can you elucidate early seventeenth century context for, and then, and then I think more more focus on providing examples of French and Native conceptions of trust and distrust in nonverbal communication and ceremonies.
0: Yeah, well, let me start by explaining why I talk about trust and distrust. Um, To put it shortly, um, I argue that violence in the colonial context and distrust are actually connected to intimacy and trust, uh, rather than due to cultural gaps or to the fact that people are confronting an alien people and they do not understand each other. So I think it might be helpful to situate where I'm coming from in saying that and what I'm responding to. For a long time, um, scholars have viewed colonial violence as a product of either understanding or misunderstanding. So for scholars who think it's due to misunderstandings, um, the arguments, in a simplified way, uh, is that because Europeans and indigenous people are so different, they belong to very different cultures, they have different values, and because they cannot communicate very well, this creates tensions, constant blunders, cultural blunders, and missteps and, mis- and misunderstandings. And this is why this is a very explosive context in which people are you know, fighting constantly. On the other hand, you have another group of scholars who actually have argued that, well, relations tend to be more peaceful at the beginning, right? During those friendly encounters where it's mostly about signs of joy and being welcomed in the community. And it's only later when both sides start really understanding the other and start perceiving the true intentions of the other side, of the other group, that conflicts arise. So in this case, uh, once linguistic communication right perceived as superior to uh, imperfect nonverbal communication, uh, once linguistic communication appears, um, the Indians are able to understand, "Oh my god, they, they're not leaving they, they, they want to take our land and that's what really leads to to conflict I don't believe that Those two interpretations are completely wrong. uh, But I think they miss a very important uh, aspect of things. Um, In my reading of sources, I don't see misunderstandings creating a lot of conflicts. Most of the time when people are aware that there's a chance that the message has not been understood, uh, they kind of let it go. Um, Misunderstandings are often diffused by humor uh, they're tolerated. Uh, even pretty big cultural blunders or offenses uh, committed by the French um, are are kind of uh, excused by by the Indians for 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 the time being to avoid violent conflict. Um, so I don't think misunderstandings are to blame. Um, what I'm trying to show is that. Trust and distrust are both grounded in a remarkably close observation of physical behaviors. What I mean by that is that the French argue that they can decipher and undermine Indian deception and Indians' attempt at tricking them and uh, surprising them because they are uniquely skilled at deciphering native bodies. So that skillfulness, that familiarity with Indian modes of expression, with Indian conventions of bodily behaviors, is really what they argue is a foundation of the success of their uh, diplomacy, right, creating friendship, but also of their... Military, I guess, or more violent uh, intentions, because they argue that they always distrust the natives because they are able, the French are able, to differentiate between the true intent and the projected intent. So maybe an Indian will make a sign of of peace. Okay, they're laying down the weapons uh, or they're making a sign that means we want to trade and we're coming in peace. But the French always say, oh, but we also perceived that there was this tiny action that that Indian made. For instance, maybe the indigenous person um, looked towards the woods, uh, just glanced behind him, and they, the French, say, "Oh, we could see that they were looking for backup; that that there were people hiding in the woods, and therefore we we were on our guards; we were, you know, uh, being careful." So they they always they use the reading um, of indigenous bodies as a way. To justify, to not only illustrate their their success and say, "Oh, look how much they love us, how much they welcome us," but they also use that to ground their distrust. Um, and I I analyze, uh, especially in 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 chapter four, I spend a lot of time looking at the Caribbean and Greater Caribbean context, which has been really uh, overlooked uh, by by scholars of of French America. Uh, And what I try to show is that very often those justifications are done uh, retroactively, where people will, French chroniclers will say, we had noticed something was off. Even though Indigenous people practice those very recognizable signs and we understood what they meant, we chose not to believe them because we suspected Uh, a negative intent on their part. And this is often completely uh, unsubstantiated. Um, When we look at what really happens, there's no evidence uh, in most cases that I've been able to look at that the Indian side was actually plotting something against the French. But in those stories, the, 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 the description of native bodies and native actions is used to justify preemptive violence. So And and this is something that all groups do, the English and the Spanish do that as well, saying because we suspected ill intent, because we do not trust native bodies, because native bodies are intrinsically treacherous uh, and they have a number of reasons for that, the way they wage wars, the ways they can steal very easily, the ways they can disguise themselves in in the natural world, all those reasons that justifies their their distrust of indigenous bodies helps them uh, develop kind of a narrative to justify their own use of violence against indigenous people. Um, There's really a double standard when it comes to deception and lies. Uh, The great irony, of course, is or contradiction, is that the French are constantly denouncing native people as having a natural predisposition for deception and treachery, while they are themselves constantly trying to manipulate uh, their own behaviors, shape their own persona to uh, please the Indians, but also to deceive them. And they admit to it. And when deception is done for the purpose of the French empire, it's acceptable. Um, although there are, I give a couple of, of examples of, of uh, exceptions of people, especially uh, missionaries who kind of um, criticize French leaders for deceiving Native, uh, Native people and kidnapping them uh, and forcibly taking them to, to Europe, where they often die. Uh, but really, uh, most of the time, that deception and the manipulation of those signs is totally acceptable in that context, uh, as long as it's done by the French and justified by a suspicion of uh, Native, I guess, uh, aggression.
1: So, in a duality of candor and deceit, how and why did emotional codes of friendship and physiogenomic observations arouse suspicions of deceptions, as well as those intimate acts of violence that you already uh, alluded to? That is, can you provide uh, more specific examples of textual accounts?
0: Yeah. um, So, By the 17th century, and um, I talk about trust and distrust, especially, like I said, in the context of the more mature French Atlantic, which is uh, the second half of the 17th century. And at that time, the French are really... Uh, making uh, inroads in in the Caribbean and the Greater Caribbean, they're very concerned uh, with settling permanently in Guyana, particularly, uh, and they they lose uh, that colony to the Dutch, to the English, and then they regain it. Uh, it's a very complicated transnational um, context. Um, but uh, I talk about this because in the seven by the seventeenth century, those are not early encounters. Um, this is not a setting in which people cannot at all understand each other or they really have to observe each other, uh, to, to understand the expectations of the other side. There have been some, uh, they're very well acquainted. They know how to behave. They know what's acceptable and what's not. So when they want to really, uh, Provoke someone or, or frustrate someone; they know exactly what to do. For instance, by withdrawing or withholding a salute that they know is expected of them uh, towards a, a native leader, for instance. Um, and so, again, because they're so familiar with those codes and the protocols uh, are so important to the to maintaining peace, uh, anytime anybody departs from those codes, uh, this, of course, arises suspicion. Um, So that's what I mean by intimacy. Um, When you expect your Good friend, your local partner in trade uh, or your local ally to welcome you in a certain way, for instance, with a gift or by partaking in food and drink with you, which is uh, what the Europeans invite the the natives to do. But the natives also feast uh, Europeans um, uh, as a way of greeting. Um, if the person, your friend or supposed friend, uh, refuses that gift or Fails to reciprocate or refuses to drink the drinks that you're offering, uh, this will of course arise uh, against suspicions uh, or uh, create tensions between between friends. Um, the French use, for instance, very familiar signs such as uh, attracting natives with some gifts, uh, producing some some desirable goods um, to make them come on board the ships, for instance. They use that sign of peace uh, uh, as a signal to really deceive the Indians and and capture them and kidnap them and and put them in, uh, enslave them or uh, force them uh, to go to Europe and hoping to train them as interpreters. Uh, And and usually those people, like I said, end up uh, unfortunately dying before they get a chance to come back, uh, to their homeland. Um, so, so that's what I mean by that. Um, there are really, uh, surprisingly detailed and, and really subtle reading of native behaviors where a French chronicler might say, you know, the, the Indian leader really tried to show himself, uh, glad he showed his happiness, but really he looked worried, or I perceived in his brow, or I perceived in his eye uh, something that you know didn't make me believe that he was fully happy, right? Um and so they like I said, very often they justify their own violence uh with references to things that are are kind of a I I feel an after-the-fact re-reading of what happened where they said, well, you know, Instead of coming very freely among us, if, instead of coming and being as casual as they usually were, uh, a group of our native friends stayed outside the fort or they remained in their canoes. And this really was a sign that they were preparing to make a quick escape if things were going sour. Um, and so that's the type of, of examples that, that I provide. Um, I also talk. I, I know. That I think that might be a, a different question, but I talk about uh, a particularly codified uh, and ritualized relationship that the French had uh, in the Caribbean and Brazil with indigenous people. Uh, that's called compérage. Um, that's a form of kind of fictive kinship initiated by indigenous people. This is a true friendship. This is supposed to be a lifelong partnership uh, between. Two men, uh, and and the Frenchman who gets adopted or gets incorporated within the indigenous uh, family that that of which he becomes a compère, um, he really has very strong reciprocal expectations put on him. He's supposed to bring back goods, uh, provide goods, valuable goods at, a, at at regular intervals. He's supposed to protect. Is uh, compare and be protected by him. Uh, it's a lot of mutual expectations, but this is also just because it's ritualized and just because it is uh, kind of it, it involves a very theatrical back and forth dialogue to to establish that relationship. That doesn't mean that it's not genuine, and and those people sometimes have decades-long relationships with each other. And so I use this example, uh, and this is something I've really uncovered um, as existing in the French Caribbean and in early Brazil uh, throughout the the 17th century. Uh, I feel like it's very important to the preservation of peace in those regions between uh, the French and indigenous people, but it's also key to violence because when a compere dies when one of the members of that partnership dies, or if someone betrays uh, their compere, because this is such a big deal, and and this is really, really a binding relationship, uh, that can just completely explode into uh, a major diplomatic crisis where indigenous groups uh, now can attack, are free to attack the French because... The, the leader who was associated with a French leader is no longer protecting him, for instance. Um, and so I, I'm trying to to see how those relationships that are really based on the performance of embodied connections and embodied communications at a very personal level between two individuals usually, how this is really an important foundation for the kind of international imperial, uh, I guess uh, creation, right? Uh, of, of by the Fran- by by France in general, um, those things are not partnerships or agreements between France and all natives or France and a big nation. They're usually done at the individual level, uh, and that preserves the peace. But it also can can also undermine it and creates all those situations of, uh, of conflicts when, when those relationships uh, are not able to manage the larger population, I
1: guess. So you've uh, addressed my question about uh, comparage. Uh, what can you, evidence can you provide for, quote-unquote, casual language learning among French lay peoples and Native Americans, particularly in the context of tensions between cultural sharing and cultural domination?
0: yeah so once again, I think it's it's helpful if I explain a little bit where I'm coming from with this um when when scholars have written about language learning in early america uh they've often- especially for the French context um they've often focused on missionaries and and for a good reason uh Jesuits particularly members of the society of Jesus were expert linguists. Uh, Most of them uh, knew several languages before they come to the Americas. uh, And and they kind of have a very mythological uh, approach to language learning. Uh, They're often versed in Greek, Hebrew, Latin. uh, And they're trying to really um, write down everything they hear uh, from natives uh phonetically they they create dictionaries they create lexicons, they copy those they pass those along to other jesuits, but both uh back in Europe and in the Americas uh to really um build a knowledge a linguistic knowledge of uh indigenous languages and we're really thankful to uh really to those missionaries because without them. Uh, some indigenous communities today would have no traces of their languages uh, because of the impact of colonization uh, and so very often those are the only traces that we have of of early uh, you know of indigenous languages in early america um, however uh, what i try to uh, what what i show in my in my book um is that that approach to language learning is somehow uh, at a place the the jesuits uh in kind of a a, a disadvantage, um, I guess, to put it simply. Um, Because Native Americans really conceived of language learning in a much more holistic way. And we know that they were right, because today when we learn a language, we know that it is best to be in immersion, right? Like to be actually speaking the language within the language community, uh, to learn it in context, to learn also... um, the modes of delivery, the ways people speak, right, with gestures and intonation and figures of speech and uh, different types of speech, uh, uh, kind of um, a more casual, uh, you know, a jargon uh, or uh, a kind of modes of expression and then more formal uh, written languages. Um, and so, on the ground, to, to come back to, to, your, uh, to your point, very few people have considered uh, how the French lay population, right, those those sailors, those early settlers, uh, people who are not often literate and, and come from those rich oral traditions that exist in France, how do they learn some of the native languages? And most of the time, it's in very casual encounters. It's while bartering on, on the beach, uh, during a, a brief stop, uh, uh, somewhere where they're trading with Indigenous people and they're learning some phrases to express friendship, to salute, uh, to to say, oh, I, I like you, you're my friend, I want to trade with you, uh, which are all really important Indigenous modes of expression during those contexts. Um, but they're learning that Uh, Again, in complete immersion, they often have the benefit as well to be able to dress like indigenous people when they spend more time with indigenous groups. So, for instance, in Brazil, uh, a lot of um, uh, French mariners are actually living among native people for extended periods of time rather than uh, confined to the French fort. And very often they marry. They marry or, you know, have uh, casual sexual relationships with um, and amorous relationships with Native women. That helps them becoming part of those kinship ties, of those kinship networks among Native groups. Um, and that helps them learn the way people communicate in different contexts, in the family context, in the official context. Uh, for instance, in, in Brazil or the Caribbean, uh, of the Carbet, which is uh, the, the meeting hall where all the people gather every day to listen to the stories told by elders. Um, Missionaries cannot do that. They cannot change the way they dress to fit uh, what indigenous people expect you're supposed to look like if you speak their language. They cannot become fully part of the communities that they're trying to integrate, that they're trying to learn the language of, uh, because they cannot marry, of course, they're celibate. Uh, they often choose to live separately, to live all together, all the Jesuits together, two or three or four Jesuit fathers uh, in in a house separately, whereas the French laymen or, or women could, could you know, uh, mix in um, with indigenous people and travel with them. This is the advantage that coureurs de bois or fur traders have in Canada, for instance, or the Truchemans, those uh, interpreters in, in Brazil um, have. Um, and so, again, because natives really b- believe that, that the French should learn their language, but not just you cannot just learn the language in isolation from the culture, um, lay Frenchmen were able to look the part, to look like an Indian, to speak like an Indian, not just with words, but with gestures and intonation and all those paralinguistic supports of uh communication of proper styles of speech uh, they are learning a very different type of linguistic skills than the missionaries can so the missionaries are definitely uh, very versed in indigenous languages and they manage to uh, acquire a great deal of linguistic knowledge uh, in in America uh, but I feel like the lay Frenchman, um, are learning a very different type of, of language, and so we see that tension. With the missionaries, are often very critical of interpreters, uh, and are very, very often very critical of lay Frenchmen for, for, for instance, for um, teaching natives French insults, uh, or teaching them uh, pagan songs or things they consider uh, improper uh, mariner songs uh, instead of and sayings instead of teaching them. Uh, how to sing a Latin hymn or uh, or a prayer, which is of course what the missionaries would prefer. Uh, at the same time, they find themselves uh, very dependent on indigenous informers, who often force them to interact and 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 use those very uncomfortable ways of communicating by acting and play acting and and gesturing in ways that missionaries feel very improper. Um, And they're also often um, forced to rely on French interpreters and French laymen, um, like the coureurs de bois, the traders, uh, to to help them communicate with with indigenous communities. Um, And they feel very frustrated uh, by that.
1: How did nonverbal communication, even sign systems associated with polysynthetic languages, facilitate French assessments of indigenous professions of Catholic faith. And what do you mean when you suggest that uh, nonverbal signals were detachable identity shifts for Native Americans?
0: So this is in continuation with what I was saying. Um, Missionaries very often relied on Native converts or what they call neophytes, people who were learning the principles of Christian faith, but were not always fully converted or, you know, uh, were still being taught uh, those, those, those tenets uh, of the Christian faith. Um, and so they often rely on native converts of neophytes who speak both French and their indigenous language or languages, uh, as the case may be, to convey their, uh, their message and their converting message uh, to, uh, to their people. Um, so this could be people who had been, like I said, taken to France um, and converted there or learned French uh, through several years and then uh, decide to help the missionaries in, in doing their job. What's interesting here is that um, that that affords uh, the missionaries this relay uh, with speakers who are much better than them uh, not only because they belong to the their native speakers, right, they belong to the culture, uh, but also because they're very skilled orators. So they're incorporating elements, new elements of expression, for instance, uh, Catholic signs, such as the sign of the cross, uh, such as, you know, symbols, new material elements uh, that belong to the Catholic culture. And they're incorporating those things within very traditional, very well established styles of oratory that are highly valued within their native communities. Um, that gives the missionaries a level of influence that they would not. Have if they were just performing in their broken, you know, Iroquois or the broken Huron language, uh, they would not necessarily have that because, despite their best effort at imitating native styles of speech, uh, they are not able um, to to really uh, combine those genres as well and as eloquently as a native speaker. Um, so. French missionaries rely on the reading again of indigenous bodies to see uh, to to measure the trust trustworthiness or the sincerity of conversion. So if they see natives um, very devoutly kneeling, which they say is a very uncomfortable and uncommon uh, posture for more most Native Americans. So if they're kneeling for long periods of time in prayer. This is a sign, right? This is a visible sign that there is potential for conversion or that they're being very devout. Uh, If they join their hands in prayer, if their their eyes are full of sincerity and tears while they listen to those sermons um, that are performed in native languages, um, then the missionaries can report home, right, um, to their superior in France. that they are being successful; that really they are, uh, you know, making inroads in within the hearts of their uh, of their flock, um, and this is again really grounded in in a larger culture uh, for which you know that the Jesuits value a kind of. Multi-dimensional, um, multimedia uh, form of of sermon and multimedia form of expression that combines images and voice and singing. Um, and objects and movement uh, and the words, of course, but also very carefully, very specifically crafted gestures, manual rhetoric uh, to really touch the hearts and the souls of the people they're trying to convert. So, yes, this is part of Jesuit culture. But I argue that this is an encounter. This is we need to read those encounters as encounters between two very rich uh and and dissimilar uh, cultures of nonverbal and verbal uh, expression um, and so while they're using you know indigenous uh, those those readings of indigenous bodies to measure i guess those uh, the sincerity of those professions of Catholic faith um they're also missing the fact that the natives who learn French or the natives who are using or incorporating some of those new elements of French culture or Catholic culture within the delivery of indigenous speech. They're also doing so for very personal, uh, very personal reasons. Um, and that looking... French, by for instance, wearing French clothing or acting, you know, pr- performing specifically French gestures such as a salute with a hat, wearing a hat and, and saluting, doing a curtsy uh, in the way that people did in the 17th century or early 18th century France, um, or doing the sign of the cross or incorporating those French elements is not just about them wanting to be French and wanting to be Catholic because they love the French or they value Catholicism. It can also be a way, and that's what I mean by detachable, to incorporate the power that this new faith and this new group, this new alliance is providing them. Uh, And that does not necessarily imply a permanent or complete transformation. Um, what the missionaries are often asking natives to do, uh, perhaps less so than Protestant missionaries, but, but still to a great extent, um, they're hoping that the natives are going to kind of abandon their old ways, that they're going to completely forsake their, what they call, superstitions, uh, and that by performing French acts, they're showing their commitment to becoming French, to being Frenchified. If we put this in the more specifically in the context of, and more carefully in the context of native epistemologies, that transformation does not really make sense uh, because the goal and, and the quality of a very great orator, of a very powerful person, a very influential person, is the ability to incorporate multiple dimensions of speech and oratory, multiple registers of speech and multiple genres, including styles of speech associated with the foreigners, for instance, uh, to make a point in a convincing way. Um, And so it's not so much in a very pragmatic and cynical way uh, that I mean it, but I think the concept of transformation of cultural change uh, associated with language learning and the performance of a foreign language, the pronunciation of the, the, the using uh, for a foreign language is extremely different uh, in the French culture and especially the Jesuit culture of the time and indigenous um, and indigenous culture at the time. And so I feel for Some Jesuit, for for some neophytes, for some of the converts, uh, this was a true transformation, a very personal choice uh, to convert to Catholicism uh, for for very intimate reasons uh, and in a very sincere way. While for other Native Americans, performing French gestures um, is a way of speaking in an appropriate style of speech when you're addressing the French to make yourself understood by your audience and to reach your audience uh, in in a better way. And so in this way, it can be detachable. You wouldn't wear a a French hat or perform a French curtsy or French salute unless the French were there. Um, And that's what I mean by that.
1: Now, how did Native American kinetic oratory and eulogies, as well as objects such as the uh, calumet, Demonstrate both the convergence and divergence of nonverbal worlds
0: yeah uh, this is again complicated uh, and hard to explain um, in 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 short but um so I mentioned in in my last chapter um, by the eighteenth century there's uh, of course we're fully combining all those nonverbal codes, some of which are still distinct, some are purely native of uh, in nature, some are purely French in nature. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of them are syncretic or hybrid by that time. Um, those are fully combined with speech. So there's always interpreters uh, of both, uh, from both groups that are present at those meetings. Um, <coughs> and so there's uh, speakers from both sides that are present at those meetings and both uh, sides are using uh, material supports and um, and and nonverbal supports that belong to the other culture as well. And so the calumet uh, or the peace pipe that the French encounter south of the Great Lakes uh, in what's today uh, Illinois uh, in the late 17th century uh, it's an example of that object that the French tend to simplify. Um, they understand that the calumet is used to create peace; that it's an important symbolic uh, object; that it really represents the identity of a group, and that when that group shares the calumet with another group, that's you know everybody recognizes the nationality of this of this object, and everybody understands the, the the symbolism of it. And so the French try to take that. And kind of export it and take it with them uh, south of the Great Lakes as they're exploring down the Mississippi and the Missouri River, and then all the way down to Louisiana uh, during the last years of uh, of the seventeenth century and into the early eighteenth century um, and and of course that doesn't work, so this is where we have limitations for for that borrowing of You know, those detachable elements of speech, uh, those material supports uh, only work within a context where other indigenous groups recognize that symbol. If you go outside of the area within which that calumet is significant, um, it's actually going to have the reverse impact, the reverse effect. And that happens to uh, a group of Frenchmen when they get to... uh, to the Sioux, and they, they reach the Sioux, and the Sioux are not happy to see the Calumet that comes from their enemies, the Miamis. and, uh, and, 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 and so that shows the limits of that. At the same time, um, one of the points that I, I make is that it becomes almost um, futile or not really um, not really significant or not really uh, interesting to try to separate between what's French and what's native during that time, because so much of it is, uh, is converging. And that's what I mean by that. Uh, some signs have become fully hybrid. Like I said, they're performed by, by both, uh, sides, um, for various purposes. Um, the French governor at the Great Peace of Montreal uh, buries a hatchet in the ground to signify the end of, of violence between his uh, children. We call his children uh, various Native nations allied to the French. So they're using those performative elements of formal oratory and formal diplomacy that belong to the other side and they're using them as if they're they're part of their own and they're distorting them in the process. They're not using them exactly in the way that a native speaker would. Uh, and in the same way, a native speaker, for instance, I, gi- I give the example of a Fox leader at the Great Peace of Montreal who salutes the governor with his wig instead of doing it with a hat and the French mock him for it. Um, but really what he's doing is he's just incorporating the wig um, to, to show his... his trade relations with the French, his knowledge of French conventions, uh, and at the same time doing it in in his own way to assert his own independence uh, in front of of other indigenous people in the audience and to the French. Um, So again, at this time, we have complete intersections, um, I guess, between uh, nonverbal codes, uh, and at the same time, uh, there's still divergences in, in what they mean. So more specifically about eulogies and about the missionary context and the religious context, um, I think um, in this case, uh, missionaries are definitely have a very different set of goals and and, and perspective on what those eulogies are supposed to achieve. Uh, and 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 it's very difficult for us today, modern scholars, to recover what the natives who participated in those uh, really intended with them. But what we can do, and that's what I do in my book, uh, is try to understand what learning a foreign language could have meant um, to an indigenous person, how that would have been perceived by their people, uh, how the use of a foreign language and foreign modes of expression, foreign, foreign you know, ticks of language and, and, and figures of speech and um, metaphors, um, what that could really have meant and what that could have done for their status within their community. And so that's, that's the type of code switching um, that I try to, to analyze in, in the book and try to better understand.
1: What was the significance of Jesuit depictions of shamans as genreuses for your book's contentions about metaphorical power? And if you could just very briefly also touch on French intersections with Spanish and English for colonial colonial forays into nonverbal communication.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned um, the word jongleur. uh, That means juggler um, or sometimes in old translations um, it's been rendered as Mary Andrew or jester, something like that. Uh, The jongleur in French culture, again, goes back to the Middle Ages and he's kind of the core jester. Uh, By the 17th century, a jongleur is someone uh, who's a little bit of a charlatan. Uh, He's someone who goes about uh, towns, who is kind of a wandering entertainer, uh, who amuses people and amuses people at court, for instance, with uh, with lies, with stories, with jokes, with uh, also um, acrobatics, right? Uh, With physical performances and dances and so forth. And so, of course, it's very significant that the missionaries, the Jesuit missionaries, choose to refer to indigenous shamans and indigenous religious persons um, as jongleurs. This is to discredit them because they are their main um, enemy. They are their main nemesis uh, or opposition. Uh, They need to undermine the authority of the shamans uh, to be able to replace right the system of belief that exists in an indigenous uh, community with Catholic principles. And so, of course, the missionaries are very, very critical everywhere they go, whether they're Jesuits in Canada or Capuchins in uh, northern Brazil um, or uh, different types of, of, of uh, Catholic uh, orders uh, throughout the Americas. They're very... Uh, distressful, of course, particularly of the shamans, and they, that's why they call them jongleurs. But they call them jongleurs as well because of their physical movements. Uh, shamans were often described performing ceremonies that were uh, very disturbing to some European observers because they would contort their bodies in ways that seemed very unnatural to European observers. They would perform... Uh, rituals in which they would dance and imitate or or portray, um, for instance, being possessed by a spirit or communicating with other than human forces in the world through, um, you know, convoluted movements and ways of of, of gesticulating that Europeans, especially missionaries. Try to depict in very negative ways as uh, complete, uh, I guess, uh, insane. You know, unnatural ways of moving your body that shows that your beliefs are superstitious and devilish and uh, and connected more to Satan than to God. Um, and so, the depictions of the shaman as jongleur uh, is. It, is a way uh, for them, like I said, to discredit those those enemies. And at the same time, what's really ironic about that is that the Jesuits spend a great amount of time trying to perform Native oratory in a way that will give them influence over Native people. And therefore, the best and the most successful missionaries are not only the ones who have gained a a significant level of linguistic fluency in an indigenous language, but actually the ones who are uh, acting like the shamans or acting like uh, a proper native orator, meaning Using things like the calume or like uh, a wampum belt, that was also a very important material support for diplomatic uh and and formal speech. Um, they're using movements they're using speech that that borrows of course from their own traditions of manual rhetoric, but also borrows heavily from indigenous codes of uh, i guess embodied eloquence to reuse my um, my book title. Um, and so what's ironic here, again, is like we're discrediting the native bodies as being deceptive and being, uh, you know, uh, overly theatrical. And at the same time, those, mis- those same missionaries are doing the exact same thing, performing in very theatrical ways. And they're very aware of that. Um, For instance, we have an example of a missionary who plants a series of arrows in the ground uh, in a way that that is inspired, directly inspired by indigenous ceremonies uh, to represent, you know, a specific message he wants. And and he delivers a series of, of multiple gifts and elucidates the meaning uh, of each of those gifts and explains what each gift is supposed to achieve. With this gift, I make peace. With this gift, I clear the path for our common friend to join us in this alliance. With this gift, um, I open, you know, the, I, I bring the sun uh, to shed light and the light of truth on those proceedings so that we know that we are truly friends. And they're reusing not only those native metaphors, but the actual embodied performances of those metaphors to achieve their own goals. Uh, and so we're really, um, I think that's really key to the success of the French in the diplomatic realm uh, with most scholars uh, are still commenting about the differences uh, between the French and the English, particularly uh, in how much more peaceful overall Um uh, the French relations were with Native people. How much more diplomacy the French practiced uh, than, let's say, the Spanish or the uh, or the English at some points. Um, and again, that has been nuanced in recent years. We know that the French also enslaved a large number of Native Americans and and committed uh, atrocities, just like other colonizers. Um, but it's true that if the French have some level of success in those intercultural meetings and those intercultural relationships, it is due to their fully conscious participation in those embodied communications. Uh, They perform the role of an Indian orator, and the missionary is also very successful in Influencing and converting natives, uh, whether it is permanently or temporarily, uh, but they are successful because they are reappropriating those modes of eloquence and those ways of, of speaking um, that include the nonverbal. So, you asked me uh, to finish, uh, kind of to talk a little bit about uh, the Spanish and English colonial forays, right, in nonverbal communication. Yes. Yeah. Um, the book is already quite long and it was a choice that I made early on to only focus it on the French, uh, because the French provide me with those two centuries of chronicles across both hemispheres. And like I said, it was very important for me to look at a long period of time, but also a large geographical areas to, to be able to see connections. Uh, but I bring in the English and the Spanish, uh, as often as I can, I also reference the Dutch and and the Portuguese to some extent, because this is a very transnational, international context, of course, and and the Americas are are full of those moments. So I believe uh, fully that the English and the Spanish come across the same uh, indigenous traditions of embodied expression, but they react to them in sometimes diverging ways and different ways than the French. Um, It's hard to explain exactly why, but the French uh, do describe those gestures and sign language in much more details than other nations overall, I'd say, especially for the 16th century. However, there are also very rich accounts. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing what other scholars can do, looking at, the nonverbal in Spanish encounters particularly. Um, I've looked myself at a lot of 16th century accounts from uh, Spanish intrusion in, in southeastern uh, North America um, and the southwest and they're completely filled with descriptions of the Indians speaking through signs and and things that really fit those patterns once again of, of conventional sign languages. Um, actually, uh, one example I provide in the conclusion is that in order to locate um, Fort Caroline and destroy it, the Spaniards w- had to communicate with natives uh, in Florida through those nonverbal means, um, and they're also very successful in understanding what the natives are telling them about the location of the French, and that's how they actually manage uh, to find them and destroy the French colony. So this is happening there too. For the English, um, I think the English have a, a similar sense of superiority to the French, right? They believe that, of course, the, the Indians are going to welcome them in positive ways because they just recognize their superiority. And, but for the English, it's grounded in technological superiority. They're really concerned with, um, they're really proud of, uh, of their technologies, their weapons, their clocks, their books, uh, and their clothing. Uh, and so they tend, for instance, when they see those very similar signs of joy uh, instead of concluding that this is about love and friendship and, and this is about creating personal connections, which the French tend to uh, to conclude, the English uh, perceive it as just the natives being in awe of them. Um, and so, of course, that leads them to, to react in very different ways, where they, they just already assume that indigenous people are just expressing their sub- subjection, basically, their... their, their um, you know the fact that the English are going to dominate them uh, and their submission to their rule, uh, and 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 the English for some reason tend to um, resist being incorporated in those embodied rituals. So where Cartier, when invited by Chief Donacona in Canada to touch him and to put his arms around Donacona's neck as a way to express friendship. When Cartier will willingly do that, and he doesn't see a problem with doing that, even though he doesn't fully understand that this is really a binding uh, alliance that he's making and that he's going to have some some expectations put on him, and so therefore he's going to break those expectations because he doesn't realize that. But he still does it. Um, in contrast, in Jamestown, uh, when Christopher Newport meets uh, Chief Powhatan for the first time, They decide to not salute him, even though their interpreters, our native guide has specifically told them, you need to salute them in this way. And they just choose not to do it to express their resistance to his authority. Um, So those are choices, but they're not not provoked by misunderstandings. Uh, It's not because they misunderstand more the gestures. They know there's a salute. They understand it's a salute. They understand that's what they're supposed to do. They just choose not to do it. So I guess I will leave it to other scholars to, uh, and some have already done it, but uh, to dive more fully into those cultural differences and and why that is. Um, But the truth is that I think um, what's very important for me is to invite people to pay more attention to the indigenous context, to what specific indigenous groups uh, intended Uh, And, of course, that's very difficult to get at sometimes. uh, And we need, of course, as much as possible to uh, discuss that with descending communities, of course, and and Native scholars as much as possible. Uh, But also kind of in our reading of colonial sources, try to recover the intention, the gesture, uh, how people communicated, uh, what they tried to communicate, and what they wanted this to mean uh even if uh maybe the colonial observers did not perceive it at the time and described it in a in a distorted way
1: so i have a final question uh, what's going on with you next are you working on any additional projects
0: yes um thank you for asking that um yeah it it actually sparked a little bit from from this one as it often does um We talked about failures earlier, uh, and it struck me that a lot of French colonies, of course, uh, French settlements... Uh, were impermanent. They did not last. For instance, the one at Guanabara Bay in what's today Rio de Janeiro uh, was destroyed by the Portuguese. I've already talked about Fort Caroline, which was destroyed by the Spanish. Other uh, settlements are abandoned or uh, simply kind of um, fail because of the lack of supply or, uh, or tensions with Native Americans. And this is an experience, especially in the 16th century, that's common to every single European nation. Uh, The English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch, everybody has failed colonies, failed colonial settlements. So that's what I'm going to look at next. I've started um, a project uh, that's tentatively called uh, Lost, uh, Failures and Memory in the Early uh, Atlantic. Uh, And I'm not going to be looking just at the French uh, this time. I'm really interested in seeing how colonial failures are remembered In that transnational literature that I mentioned earlier, uh, where people are reprinting and translating accounts from other uh, nations and and, and, and kind of sharing, you know, those histories or stories uh, of settlements uh, by different nations in America. And how do they explain failure? How do they remember it? Do they try to erase it? Uh, Do they try to learn from it? Um, And also, how do they portray their own failures versus the failures of others? And another dimension I'm really interested in is to see the place of indigenous uh, knowledge and indigenous history in that kind of commemoration or memorialization of failure uh, and failed colonies, uh, trying to understand a little bit how stories that natives uh, told uh, Europeans about former presence of other europeans or about their own displacements their own stories of uh, you know uh, their own histories how that makes its way in this travel literature and how that informs uh, then the settlement of of more permanent colonies such as quebec or jamestown or um, or other uh, settlements so this is what i'm 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 looking forward to doing um, in the future
1: well, thank you. We hope you've, you remember New Books in History for that particular project.
0: Sure. Yeah. And thank you again for having me.
1: So uh, the book is Eloquence Embodied, Nonverbal Communication Among French and Indigenous Peoples in the Americas, out now by uh, UNC Press, the Imahundra Institute. On behalf of Professor Cayenne, as well as New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.